for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show. This is episode 36. Our guest today is Matt Mayer, who is the president of Opportunity Ohio, and we'll learn more about what that organization is during the show today. Matt, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Could you share for the audience your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, who were your influences in life, and just kind of lead us into where you got to this point in your life? Yeah, you bet. I am a fifth-generation Daytonian who grew up uh, in a town called Westerville, just northeast of Columbus, uh, where I spent most of my life. Uh, attended University of Dayton undergraduate, where I double majored in psychology and philosophy, and then went to law school at Ohio State. Practiced law for a couple of years. Couldn't stand uh, the practice of law, so I went political. Uh, ran a congressional campaign and a U.S. Senate campaign in Colorado. Worked for the governor there, and got a got a call to go work for the president in Washington at Homeland Security. So did that for a couple of years, and then. Uh, my wife had a great opportunity here in uh, Dublin, Ohio, so we, we moved back here, and I've been doing public policy through several different uh, venues over the last uh, nine years, essentially, uh, the Heritage Foundation, Opportunity Ohio, and, uh, and that kind of is most of what I spend my time doing is public policy. Great. Growing up in Westerville, who, who are some of your key influences, and what did they do to pique your interest in what you're doing now? Yeah, so yeah, I was very influenced by Ronald Reagan. I was essentially nine years old when he was elected president and uh, and really just thought uh, he was an impressive guy and uh, so so really you know, followed him closely over his presidency and, and post-presidency and kind of been a fan ever since. Uh, you know, my congressman growing up was John Kasich, who's our current governor. Um, I don't like what he's doing today uh, very much, but when he was a congressman, I, I was a big fan of his. So, uh, you know, admired him greatly back uh, in the 80s uh, and early 90s. And so, again, he also had an influence on, on me getting into public policy uh, as I kind of developed my own career. And, you know, after that, I think some of my, uh, my influence were my grandfather. He was a guy who lived his whole life in Dayton and uh, ran a feed store there. And he just was a hardworking entrepreneur who, who did what he could to provide for his family and, you know, always worked hard. So, you know, that kind of good old-fashioned Protestant work ethic always, uh, always was something I admired in him. Neat. And opportunity, before we go into Opportunity Ohio, for those of you in the audience who don't aren't aware of the Heritage Foundation, it's, it's a wonderful think tank with a lot of things that come out every day. How would you just explain the Heritage Foundation to the audience? Oh, yeah, Heritage is a conservative organization that's involved in kind of fiscal and social issues uh, in the policy debates in Washington. They're focused on federal policy, so they do virtually every uh, issue you can think of at the federal level they engage on from a public policy standpoint. Okay. And then Opportunity Ohio, was this an organization that existed before you got involved or – what where where did you fit into the process of Opportunity Ohio? Uh, yeah, so when I got to Ohio, uh, I essentially uh, took over the Buckeye Institute for Public Policy Solutions, which is another free market group here in Ohio. And uh, it was when I got there, it was about half a million dollars in debt and had been kind of rendered irrelevant. And so in the two and a half years I was in charge of Buckeye, I built it back up, uh, made it a force to be reckoned with, and left it with uh, two 
are plus surplus of so continue doing good work and they're doing that still today. Uh, but I left Buckeye in order to write my uh, second book, and then in that process, essentially started a new C3 free market group called Opportunity Ohio that's now been up for over three years and uh, is quickly doing a lot of, of the, the you know, free market uh, fiscal uh, conservative issues that uh, that I did at Buckeye and, and now I'm just simply doing those here at Opportunity Ohio. Great. Before we get into talking about Opportunity Ohio, uh, I, I noticed you've, I believe you've authored three books. Can you take the audience through each of those books briefly, what they're about? Yeah, so I wrote my first book in 2009, and that one's called Homeland Security and Federalism, Protecting America from Outside the Beltway, which has a foreword done by uh, Ed, Ed Meese III, who was uh, President Reagan's Attorney General, uh, and is now Terry Foundation. And that book really takes a look at how we could protect America through the state and local uh, powers rather than through federal powers. And that was the first book. The second book came out in 2012, and that book is called uh, Taxpayers Don't Stand a Chance, uh, How Battleground Ohio Loses No Matter Who Wins and What to Do About It. And that book really came out of looking at the problems that we had in Ohio and the, uh, the kind of early failures by Governor Kasich and, and realizing that, you know, the political class simply doesn't uh, get things done. But they, they do things to their own advantage to advance their own careers. But unfortunately, taxpayers uh, get stuck with the bill. And, uh, and so I wrote that book in order to kind of advance that issue on how we can try to turn that around and get the political class to do what people want rather than vice versa. And then the last book came out in 2014, and that was called The Founding Debate, uh, Where Should the Power of Our, our Lives Reside? And what that really is is a, is a book that uh, uh, takes the best five federalist papers, the best five anti-federalist papers, reprints those along with excerpts from the 10 Supreme Court cases, that decided the issue of where would the power of our lives be, which is now in Washington, D.C., as you can imagine, and lets readers really come to their, conclu- their own conclusion about, you know, who was right in that 1787 debate uh, where the Federalist right or the Anti-Federalist, and, and how do we try to unwind uh, those 10 Supreme Court cases that has, have taken more and more power away from we the people uh, over the last 229 years. And so that book came out in 2014. All three are available on Amazon. Uh, dot com if, you, if you're an Amazon person, uh, but, uh, but and I priced the two uh, second and third book very inexpensively in order to make sure people could afford them. Right. Because uh, I'm talking about the money. 100% of all the money I get from the sale of books goes to the very library out in California. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. Uh, something I'm curious about, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, is you've been on the John Stossel show several times what's what's the what are those experiences been like oh they're great experiences you know i've had the privilege of being able to meet uh meet uh, mr stossel and, and sit, sit in the room with him and we had a just a fantastic talk uh about kind of the various issues and uh the, the one the big one was uh, back in february did a national uh televised issue on kind of the role of government and spontaneous order and do we really need big government to step in or, or do people take care of themselves and i talked a lot about the role of uh, the federal government when it comes to natural disasters and how people, you know, local people are already are always there first and doing great work for the best community to get there. So uh, it's a, he's a neat guy, and uh, and I think he does good work here for Fox News. Great, great. Um, looking at the Opportunity Ohio website, there were th- three themes that I pulled out from there, and I was hoping you could speak on on each one of those and perhaps give some examples of where you see that that perhaps the state of Ohio is lacking. 
the first one is freedom and competitiveness. Can you speak to what Opportunity Ohio is trying to advance in that regard and what are the, the bad examples of that that you see? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, that, the, the Ohio really, uh, as a forced unionization state uh, with lots of other pro-union policies in the public sector, you know, the government pensions are, are fairly lucrative if you're a government worker. All of that comes with enormous cost, and it makes us less competitive with states in the South and, and West that, that are right-to-work states uh, where public sector unions don't have the power like they do here in Ohio. And so that really goes to, to essentially fight big labor and educate Ohioans on on why, you know, here we are yet again. Uh, in 2015, Ohio has added a net of 9,500 private sector jobs the entire year, uh, whereas other states are doing far better, in, in, including Michigan and Indiana, now that they are a right-to-work state, having changed that status in 2012. And so the, the argument there is to say, if we want to be competitive in the economic marketplace, we have to bring down our tax rates, we've got to be uh, less pro-union, and, and allow uh, workers and employers to, to kind of grow and prosper, because that's the, that's always going to be the road to prosperity for, for Ohio. It's not going to be through a more expensive government uh, or stronger labor unions. Mm-hmm. I, I know you your your website, along with many other people, of course, have been very critical about Governor Kasich and some of the subsidies he's handed to certain businesses but certainly not across the board as you're advocating. What, what, are, what are some of those practices that you've seen from the governor's office and how can we, how can we work forward to, to getting a better solution for and create that competitive environment for everybody? Yeah, so, you know, uh, Governor Kasich has been opposed to, to right to work and has worked it against the, the various grassroots groups that are trying to put the, that issue forward here in Ohio. So that's been a deep disappointment for many of us. Um, and additionally, you know, he, he's really a tax shifter, not a tax cutter. Uh, in his time as governor, he's really uh, cut income taxes, but he's shifted those taxes uh, onto higher taxes elsewhere, the cat tax, sales tax, trying to pass it as severance tax on oil and gas. And so what he ends up doing is because he has increased government spending by over 37% in just four years, um, it forces him to keep taxes high across the board in order to fund the higher cost of government. And so when he cuts income taxes, he's got to essentially replace that money with money elsewhere. So that's why he's been shifting taxes, not cutting. And Ohio's just not going to be competitive if our tax rates are, are high across the board. If your net taxes are high, it doesn't matter that your income tax might be low because it gets you know, get, get, you get paid out elsewhere, like in a sales tax or a cat tax. Um, and so, w- w- what we need to do is get back to the idea that we we free uh, Ohio's employers and workers from the yoke of unionism, that we reduce the net taxes across the board, uh, and that we bring uh, public sector workers in line because they are at the local level, especially forcing property taxes higher and higher every year. And you know, Ohio is is really unfortunately one of those states that we have over 3,700 taxi jurisdictions in Ohio, which is the third most of any state in America. And each one of those has a tax that they put on your property or your income uh, in, or you know, your, 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 your consumption. And so all of that is really keeping Ohio as a high tax state uh, on debt. So, you know, reducing the income tax a little bit here isn't really giving taxpayers a net relief uh, in, the big, in the big picture. You mentioned right to work a few times and, for the audience perspective, what 
what additional costs come? Say, say you're you're running a, a small business that has a fair fair number of skilled workers that would potentially be represented by a union. What what additional expenses do those businesses occur if you're not a right to work state? Uh, so um, you know the, the, what, what you would hear. Uh, take it, I, 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 you know, I take one of my biggest learnings first from the head of Michelin North America, and they just added a huge plant down in South Carolina. You know, Ohio used to be number one in tire production, and now we're number 11. South Carolina soon will be number one in tire production. And what he said when he was asked why he's putting another plant in South Carolina, he said, look, the, the, the wages that our southern workers make and our northern workers make is roughly the same. The difference between the two locations is we control the workplace in the south. And that really becomes the biggest issue is when, when unions are involved, and they bring a thousand-page work rules to bear. They really create a flexibility on the workplace floor that makes it a very inefficient and high-cost place compared to non-unionized environment. And that makes that makes getting ahead and earning a profit very difficult in a global globally competitive environment that we now live in. And so, one of the issues that 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 is a huge difference is where there are unionized plants. The the cost not only tends to be higher. Uh, in terms of labor and, and the cost of labor, but the entire flexibility on the workplace floor becomes incredibly difficult. Uh, where everything to be, you know, oh, well, I'm going to grieve that because you know my job description says X, so no, I'm not going to go help out here because I don't have to. That mentality, you know, really makes makes it difficult to to win in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another part about the competitiveness that we we were discussing was. Uh, the tax abatements or the favorable tax situations to recruit businesses into Ohio or keep big businesses from leaving. Uh, the issue I have with that is not everyone has those opportunities. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Well, you know, so here's the deal, right? We have a long history uh, and lots of data that government is inherently bad at taking winners and losers in the marketplace, and that and therefore using taxpayer resources to to you know, encourage somebody to, to come here or to stay here. And, you know, we have a peak uh, coming out in a week that will hit Jobs Ohio because, you know, here we are in the fifth year of Jobs Ohio, and they've made claims every year that they've retained, you know, 80,000 jobs, and they've got promises for another 80,000 jobs, uh, and they do that every single year. Yet, here we are in the fifth year of its organization, and, and Ohio has is ranked 45th in 2015 for net private sector job growth. So one would think if we have this organization that's spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to to keep keep and recruit businesses that has this formula that the governor says is the best in the business, you would think that in year five, right, our private sector job growth would be among the best in America. Instead, it's among the worst. So what that says is, once again, we're spending lots of money for people to make a ton of money in the whole corporate cronyism environment, but what we're not getting is private sector jobs created in Ohio. And that is that is yet another problem that we face, and we should just get government out of the business of doing these incentives because they don't work. They they, they, they are short term palliatives that fail to fix the long term problems that we have. Mm-hmm. So, if if I could put on if I could bestow the governor hat to you for a day, what what would you do? To, what, are, what are three to five things you would do to make Ohio more free and more competitive uh, to promote business growth? Yeah, if I, if, I, if, I, if I am governor in 2019, right, here 
here are the things I'm going to do. I'm going to make uh, Ohio right to work, come, come hook or crook. Number two, I'm going to reverse Medicaid expansion because that the enrollment numbers on that have come in, to, to, to come in twice as high or more than what the governor said, and the cost is going to be in the $5 billion to $20 billion mark on Ohio taxpayers when we start having to pay our share. So I'm going to unwind Medicaid expansion. Uh, third, after that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring down net taxes because we have to do that. We're going to get everybody in a room, lay the state and local government, we're going to figure out how we make fewer government jurisdictions in the state because we don't need 88 counties or 613 school districts or God knows how many townships or villages. What we need is government giving services that the people want at the price they can afford. So we're going to tackle that problem. And those are what I'm going to spend my time doing uh, if I were governor. The mm-hmm. other thing I would do is I would spend a huge amount of time in the very first parts of, of my governorship going from A to Z over every single government entity in Ohio to see what it's doing, what it's costing, what metric results are it getting. And if it doesn't make sense, we're going to get rid of it immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to the second topic, and we've kind of touched on this, is job creation and entrepreneurship. What what it, it you, you, I know you study all fifty states, and you study other countries. What what are the best factors about an environment that promote job creation and entrepreneurship? Yeah, you know, low regulations, uh, low taxes, and. You know, an innovative environment where we where we recognize that government doesn't create jobs; it only gets in the way. And you've got to have that mentality shape your state uh, 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 kind of spirit in order for you to kind of have be a place that becomes a, a hub of activity, like Austin, Texas. You know, like the Silicon Valley. And and if you don't, if you're high tax, if you're high regulation, if you send out a message that you know you. you you, you, you're going to try to play lottery games with winners and losers, and you're just not going to be a place that says, hey, we're, we're going to create an environment here that's going to be great for you, but we're not going to have to you know, pay off to do it. I think that's going to create a level of entrepreneurship that we had at the turn of the century when the Wright brothers did all the great work we did when Dayton uh, had more, more patents issued per capita than any other city in America at the turn of the century. we got to get back to that spirit of innovation that gets government out of the way and allows our entrepreneurs to do the things they do best. Mm-hmm. I know your organization all the time is looking at things from an education perspective. What are some things within the Ohio educational system that can be reformed or changed to help get to that environment? Yeah, so look, you know, in, in K-12 environment, what we've got to do is we've got to get the cost down uh, and the results up. I mean, we're spending too much money for the weak results that we end up getting. And so part of this issue is we've got to do a better job of, of making sure we have teachers in the classroom that are there because it's a calling uh, and that are doing their job in day in and day out to make sure our kids know what they need to know to be successful in college or trade school or going out to the job market. And then a higher end, look, here's the problem line. We've got way too many colleges and universities in Ohio that provide a mediocre to poor product at a too high a cost. And so what we've got to do is, is prune all this administration that's grown up in all these colleges. We've got to do things like, you know, if the same course is being taught at, you know, nine different colleges, let's find a professor who does it best and let's put it online and video it so that students sitting in the other college campuses can take that course, and yet we're not paying for eight different professors and eight different tenure packages and eight different classrooms. 
So there's a way to bring the cost down, but get the results up by putting putting the best and best and brightest professors in front of our students, no matter where they attend. So there are lots of things we can do to get better results uh, out of our education system in Ohio, uh, given how much we pay. Mm-hmm. What are some What are some good educational examples you've seen in your research? Well, you know, uh, you know, I think what you look at is you have schools like the KIPP schools that are very, very uh, metric driven and that are doing very good work to get results. There are some schools uh, that I think we need to figure out what's working and how do we replicate that. And I think there are going to be some hard, hard choices. I mean, we've got to put kids first and, and stop putting the unions first when it comes to some of these urban schools uh, that it's all about protecting the, the teachers uh, administrators and not about making sure those kids are educated. And so, you know, when we look across the country, a guy named uh, M. Night Shyamalan, you may have heard of him, he's actually a movie director who did The, the Sixth Sense. You know, he wrote a very good book uh, about the, uh, the K-12 system and what works and what doesn't. And I think that book should be put in the hands of every superintendent in Ohio. Uh, and we should bring M. Night Shyamalan here and, and have him talk about what it is. He, he, he did two years of research uh, on this issue because he was essentially giving money as a, as a grantor to reform these schools. And yet he could, wasn't seeing the results. And so they, they stopped giving money and took time to investigate what worked and what didn't. And there are some good things that work and we need to replicate those things. And when, and the things that don't, we need to stop. Mm-hmm. Something that you touched on that I, that Ron Paul talked about in his book on education was the use of technology uh, in the classrooms. And, and it seems like that could be, like you said, a very effective teaching tool to where you can consolidate resources but still create the same opportunities. Have, have you seen have you seen some pockets where that's been done successfully? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, look, we, we can't put technology ahead for technology's sake. we got to do where it makes sense. But there are certain places like in STEM courses, uh, in the sciences, where we could really harness technology in an interesting way, 3D, 3D printing, uh, using, you know, using computer and, and, and AutoCAD kind of components in the classroom to help kids learn how to how do they design, how do they create uh, the technologies of tomorrow. And so there's really interesting things going on uh, across the country that we should find again, find which do a do a survey to figure out which ones are the best uh, and let's put them in the right classrooms. But don't put them in every classroom because not every kid's ready for that. But but we need to make sure we do uh, what we can to get the kids that are ready the tools they need to challenge them and have them grow as, as, as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Something I, I've been very intrigued from the educational standpoint is why there why there's always been this thought that kids need to be grouped by age for certain classes rather than skill level. So if a fifth grader can do ninth grade math, why don't they have that opportunity to do that? They've got to stay in the fifth grade classroom and generally probably get bored. Have you... Have you yeah. seen that anywhere in your in your studies? I haven't, but you know, it, it's something that needs to be looked at. It, 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 and I think we need to make sure that we're giving kids challenges, and that's that's the key, right? Now, at the same time, I will say, you know, I, I also think we've gotten too much into a headlong rush for our kids to become, you know, adults too fast. And, sure. and what I worry about is, you know, we 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 we, we seem to be uh, giving them less time to just be kids. Uh, and you know, one of the things I think we should look, look hard at is, is you know, year-round schooling. Uh, I think, you know, if you, if you look at it, you know, in Ohio, most state contracts uh, for schools, uh, it's 185 workday. Well, let's do the math on that. That's about 50% of the school of, of a year. So our kids are in school for essentially half a year worth of time. I, I don't think that's a good thing. You know, studies show 
pretty solidly that summer months are wasted, that kids, re- they, you know, they regress uh, because their brains go on autopilot. And then that first couple weeks of, of the school year are spent getting those brains activated again and, and regurgitating stuff that they've already done. Well, why in the world should we do that? Let's, let's have schools go year round uh, in a way that keeps the kids constantly engaged. And every so often we'll give them a two week break mm-hmm. so that they can digest it. Other states are going year round. I think if we look at it, we, we want to get ahead and become the, the, the country that leads. We got to make sure our kids are prepared. And I don't know if 185 days a year is enough. So let's give them playtime, but let's also make sure they're in school uh, learning as much as they can be. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I call it mush brain when they're when they're out all summer and then trying to get back into it. Yeah, and it's crazy. I mean, I know in our family we spend we spend money in the summer to make sure our kids are in, in uh, you know are being you know pushed educationally all year. And and I think that you know that 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 shouldn't be something we have to do as, on our own. It should happen because you know the school system recognizes the importance of of keeping kids engaged year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, Something that you mentioned earlier that I, I observed it at a conference several years ago was a place like Austin, Texas. Uh, that that is right. just that's just a hub for so many neat things. What what are the traits of that environment? I, I know Texas has a very favorable tax climate, uh, but what what beyond that creates such a favorable situation that businesses have, are flocking there? You know, it, that's a great question. You know, Denver, Colorado has it as well, um, and it's a vibe. And you know, I, I wish I knew what the answer to that vibe was. But I tell you what, I would do. I, I would, I would have them supposed spend some time in, in those cities where there is that vibe to figure out what are they doing that's creating this this kind of appeal. Raleigh, North Carolina is another one. Or you know, what are they doing that is making it so attractive for our best and brightest to kind of go there and start businesses and engage? I mean, you feel it when you're in those cities. You know, you see cranes building private sector buildings, where places like Ohio, the cranes are just building government buildings, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've got to figure out how do you create that vibe and, 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 and do our best to do so. And I think that's one of the things that we'll have to do a whole lot better at than, than just watching as our best and brightest get educated here. We spend all that money to educate them, and then they go and move to places like Denver, Colorado, and Austin, Texas, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Every, every place in the country has something or – a few things that make them a unique situation. What what does Ohio have that perhaps is being underutilized from a resource standpoint or is a resource that's not being tapped to create that vibe and in those opportunities? Well, you know, we've got uh, a very low cost of living and that is that should be attractive to a lot of people. Um, so that's number one. Number two, uh, you know, we've got a, a, a great location from a, from a reaching the population standpoint. The problem is our infrastructure is horrendous. You know, we have uh, our airports in Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland, which are our biggest cities. You know, the best, the highest ranked one is, is ranked like 50 or 50, 51 or 52 in terms of uh, flights because, you know, we had governors in, in the past who failed when they needed to be aggressive in building world-class airports in Ohio that allowed us to become hubs. And now that the system is settled, we now have airports where, you know, we've lost the hub hub opportunity. And as a result, you know, if you live in Ohio and you're a business person and you want to try to get somewhere, you've got to go somewhere to get somewhere. You've got to fly through a hub in order to get to where you want. For, for businesses, that, that's a bad idea. And people don't want to go to a place like that where you there are really no real flight, direct flights to Europe uh, or other places. And so there are things like that that we've got to fix, but we have an opportunity where we could. 
could, if we had the right leadership, who figured out uh, that, that here we have this low cost of living, we've got an educated workforce, but yet we lack the infrastructure that makes it a place people want to live. And I think we could do a better job at that. Yeah. I know we, we've touched on a, some things that governments should not be doing, uh, and perhaps we just touch on something that government should be doing. What What is the role of government in creating that entrepreneurial spirit and environment? You know, I think that, that you need to have a government that, that where, it's, where its workers go to, to their job every day thinking, how can I make Ohio the best place in America? And whether that's a teacher teaching second graders or that's a state worker that does transportation work, no matter who it is, they've got to be inculcated with this idea that, that what they do has an impact. And that impact should be positive, not negative. So we need to look at lower regulation, lower taxation, and getting outcomes for where we spend taxpayer funds. Really hard metrics. And I think if we had that mentality, I think some of these things would start to fall in place. And for the audience's sake, I know you study this. Where does Ohio rank nationally in terms of the tax environment? Uh, in the tax environment, we are, we are it's a, it's a, uh, when you take the whole state and local tax burden, you know, we're kind of in the middling of it. We, we always appear to be in the middling, right? We're in the, in the middle 20, uh, middle 15, and, and so we're not the highest and we're not the lowest. Um, local taxes were pretty darn high. State taxes were, were not that bad, uh, but the combined is, is pretty burdensome. And so uh, we've, got to, we've got to get Ohio in a better position or, or we're just not going to build people in the south and west. In Ohio's heyday, probably the the early to mid 20th century seems to be the one that's talked about the most. What, what was the, the tax environment like in Ohio then compared to peer states nationally? Well, you know, we didn't have the income tax, state income tax, uh, until until after that period of time. And, you know, I think you had a much lower tax environment here in Ohio. Um, one of the big differences back then is, you know, before there was a globally competitive work, uh, work world, you know, Ohio was, was a, you know, the seventh largest state. And so as a result, it, it got a low share of a lot of the manufacturing and a lot of the, the work that came out of, of, uh, of the country. And, and so when America was kind of a unipolar entity that, that in a post-World War II devastated uh, Europe, devastated uh, Japan, you know, we could, we could do what we wanted by and large and, and charge what prices we wanted. And we were going to get it because we were the only ones who could do it. But as we hit the 1970s and as Europe got back online and Japan got back online, you know, we were dumb fat and happy and our competitiveness was really, really low. And you've now seen the results of that in the, you know, the enormous loss of manufacturing jobs uh, and, and our inability to provide great products where we have, you know, foreign cars now dominate uh, and did for, for 20, 25, 30 years before the, the domestics were forced to start competing better. So those are the things that, you know, you look at, you look back on and you wonder, you know, how did we, how did we get so far astray? Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show. Episode 37 will be part two of our interview with Matt Mayer, president of Opportunity Ohio. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on Facebook. Have a great day.